following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Uh, If you would, open up your Bibles or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We are in Genesis, uh, chapter 6, the first book of the Old Testament, uh, chapter 6. And we're going to cover a pretty significant amount of Scripture um, today. We'll go all the way to chapter 8, verse uh, 22. And as you look at the sermon title, you're probably thinking to yourself, I know this story. I learned it when I was a kid. You know, some of you did. And let me just tell you something. When I study the Old Testament, I, I need to make a phone call to my Sunday school teacher. Because what was on the felt board and what's in the text, I feel like she watered that down a little bit, right? Like Noah and the ark and like David and Bathsheba, like we did not talk about some things in the text that were there, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my youngest daughter um, spit some Old Testament scripture out the other day, and I was like, yep, that's in the Bible. <laughs> Go talk about that later, I guess, you know? Uh, so there's some tough passages of scripture uh, that we are going to walk through, um, and, and this has just been so good to study this book together. So if you're missing any of these messages, you can go back communitygospelchurch.com and pick them up. And then I'm going to try to um, help you uh, every time that uh, I'm up here and uh, get you uh, essentially uh, expediated to where we're at. And so let me just give you a little bit of a summary of the first six chapters of Genesis. Genesis is written by a guy named Moses. Moses is the guy that you know who um, told Pharaoh, let my people go. He doesn't just write Genesis. He also writes the first five books of the Old Testament. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is called the law or the Torah. And Genesis, er, and Moses is writing Genesis to the Israelites. Um, this deals with um, their, their history, where they came from, what to remember as they continue to try to serve to honor the Lord with all they think, say, and do. So we have uncovered in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the name for the creator God is Elohim. That is um, Hebrew in regards to triune language. All right, So you have God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit, not three different gods. We're not polytheistic here. Uh, monotheism, three uh, persons. So not three gods. God, one, per- one, one God, three persons. Now, it's hard for you to kind of understand that in our society, but just think about it like this. I, I pastor, um, I'm a father, uh, I'm a professor, those type of things, right? Different roles, still same person, all right? One, one God, God the creator, Elohim, creates the world in six literal 24-hour days, giving away some of my theology there, um, rests on the seventh, uh, and on the sixth day, Elohim creates humans. We have Adam, the first man, and then Eve, the first woman. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are placed in a garden called Eden. They're given dominion over the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see the serpent come, and his name is Satan, as we learned in Revelation. And he tempts Eve to eat from the forbidden tree. There's two trees in the Garden of Eden. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. 
And God tells um, Adam and Eve, he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes in as a tempter, and he tempts them to sin, and it is their fault. They eat from the forbidden tree. She gives in. Adam's standing right next to her, so she gives Adam some of that food as well. He eats, so it's not man's fault or woman's fault. It's their fault because the two are one. Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve have kids. Um, They have Cain, they have Abel, and then they have Seth. Cain sinfully kills Abel. That's the first murder as well as the first sibling rivalry that starts in the Bible. And he chooses to disobey Yahweh, which is God's covenant name that we talked about. Now, Cain's descendants disobey as well. And so you get all of these genealogies that are listed in Genesis chapter 5. Seth is the important one because in Seth's line, we see seeds that honor Yahweh, the covenant God, which eventually will lead to Jesus, the Messiah. So as you study the Old Testament, you're constantly on this tour of coming to Christ in the New Testament. People in the Old Testament looked forward to the Messiah who would come. Eve knew about the Messiah because it was promised to her that there would, become, there would be one that would crush Satan. And that comes from Seth's line, that's Jesus as we know, okay? So um, you can read the Old Testament and just see the promised Messiah um, coming to fruition based off God's sovereignty. All right, so these chapters, all of those six chapters set the stage for the rest of our study in regards to sin, redemption, and God's plan for humanity. So we look at Genesis and we realize people are looking forward to the Messiah who would come. We look backwards to the Messiah who came, all right? Story of redemption is all throughout the text. Make sure that you're keeping those together. Now, here we get into uh, this popular story, like I said, of Noah and the ark. And so we need to uh, unpack this and see if we can figure this out. We're going to talk about righteousness and covenant, two things that we're going to talk about today. Righteousness, what does it mean to be righteous, and then covenant in regards to God's Promise, And that all is going to start with Noah and the imminent flood. Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 6, and uh, we'll start in verse 9. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. <clears throat> all right. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Could the same be said about you? And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. I always think it's weird to name your kid after a meat, but he did. <clears throat> and we'll just stop there for a second. If you want to, circle the word uh, generations. Generations is the same word as descendants. Now, I love in verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of Elohim. And my question is, why? Why does he find favor in the eyes of God? There's three reasons. Number one, he is righteous. You can underline that in the text. Righteous means that Noah understood Elohim's rules for governing the world, and he followed them in both conduct and in character. What makes us righteous? We first of all acknowledge we live in God's world. He has set his world up, and he asks us and commands us both to follow those truths with conduct and character. We cannot do this by ourselves. We learn that in the New Testament. We need a new spirit. And so Jesus, thankfully, gives us a new spirit. And when we confess our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we become righteous and we obey 
what God commands us to do. Now, so the first thing is he's righteous. He understood the rules. He understood it's God's world. He uh, followed them in conduct and character. Two, he is blameless. This suggests that Noah was completely sold out to righteousness. And when we see the word sold out for righteousness, what we mean is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, it says, he abstained from sin, yet he was not without sin. He is completely devoted to the cause of the gospel. Noah's 100% sold out. How many of us in our societies love Jesus 50%, 60%, 70%? We said, I'll give you a portion of my life, but I won't give you all of my life. Noah says, I'm going to give the Lord everything. Number three, he walked with Elohim. I love the word walked because it's the same phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians. It's just in Hebrew. Paul uses Greek. And when it says that he walked with Elohim, it means that it links Noah with Enoch's godly line of Seth. And Noah's listed sons carry on genealogy records and they foreshadow the destiny of what we talked about last week. Either choosing to obey God and finding themselves in judgment, or obeying God and realizing that there's blessing that comes from it. Keep going. Verse 11. <clears throat> All right. Now, the earth, this is going to sound extremely familiar, was corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13. God said to Noah, <clears throat> Now, we don't know if this is audible or inaudible or how he chose to spoke to him. We don't have that text, uh, but we do know that he did speak to him. And he said, I've determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So there's corruption and there's destruction that is transpiring. Can't help but see the similarities from this world to our world. The earth is corrupt in Elohim's sight. It's filled with violence. Now, if you want to circle that word violence, the word violence in the Hebrew there is the word Hamas. Sound interesting? A bunch of you looked up at me. <clears throat> it means the infringement of the personal right of others, and it's motivated by greed and hate. Also sounds familiar. Elohim once blessed humanity with the power of procreation to fill the earth, but man chose to fill the earth with his self-indulgent immorality. It wasn't just one person, but notice it's all flesh. Now, here's the crazy thing that I was not taught in Sunday school, right? It says that there were both animals and people that were corrupt. How did animals get corrupt? I mean, did they sin? I thought my dog goes to heaven. Here... What it means is, it means that man was so evil that he enraged animals. Think about like a matador and what he does to a bull. Or think about how like children throw rocks at dogs. Like man had become so corrupt and so evil, they were making animals evil. And so here, both people and animals disobeyed the parameters and orders of Yahweh. And so Elohim speaks to Noah and he says, I'm going to make an end of all flesh, man and beast. And I'm going to destroy them with the earth. Now, notice, that's important because in the culmination of the story, God will say, I'll never destroy the earth again by water. But he will destroy the earth again by fire. So that's Revelation. And that's a different book. We'll get there later. All right. Destroy is the same word corrupt in uh, chapter 6, verse 12. So just as people 
corrupted the earth, God would mutilate the earth so it would no longer feed him. Now, I love commentator uh, Sarna on this. He uh, says that the idea is that humankind cannot undermine the moral basis of society without endangering the very existence of its civilization. I know that's like a big quote, but just take a moment to comprehend what he's saying here. In fact, through its corruption, society sets in motion the process of inevitable self-destruction. It's happening and transpiring in our world today. This is, this, is, this is happening. This is manifesting, right? There will come a time when God's hands will drop. He will, he will stop asking people to come into a relationship with him, and his other hand that is withholding judgment will fall, and the judgment will come on man. And, and man will look at God, and he'll say, uh, it's your fault. And God will say, no, you set this into motion. This is an inevitable self-destruction that will come. So the question on the table is always, whose side are you on? Right? Do you have a relationship with God through faith in Christ? Or are you living uh, self-serving and self-pleasing and doing your own thing? Something to think about, right? Such a happy message this morning. Okay. <clears throat> Which brings us to salvation. Look at verse 14. I'll try to smile more. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Verse 15. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. For those of you in construction, I think we should go back to this. Get rid of metric and all that other stuff. We'll just go back to cubits. And it's breadth 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. I'll uh, make those modifications for you in just a second. Verse 16. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it with a cubit above and set the door on the ark in its side. Make a lower, a second, and a third deck. And for those of you who have been to the ark, you're like, I know exactly what this looks like. Right? I've seen it in Kentucky. <clears throat> For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Now, here's the promise, right? This is, this is a covenant he's making with Noah. Everything, end of verse 17, that is on the earth shall die. Now, the interesting thing in Genesis, when God looks at Adam and he says, you will die, he doesn't know what he's talking about now. Man knows what he's talking about, Okay. Now, Elohim doesn't entrust the means of salvation to Noah's imagination. He doesn't just say, hey, build a boat. Let's see what happens, right? Notice he gives detailed instructions on building the ark, and there's no mention of a rudder or navigational aids. He's got no GPS on this boat, right? He doesn't know where he's going. And the word ark, if you want to circle that, is only going to be used again, speaking in regards to salvation of baby Moses in Exodus chapter 2. The ark is made of gopher. Maybe your translation says cypress wood. Ancient used uh, that type of wood in shipbuilding due to the resistance of rot with rooms. Now, if you want, I'm going to give you permission to do this, okay? You can go ahead and cross out the word rooms and write the word ness. N-E-S-T-S. That's actually a better translation of the Hebrew, which I think is interesting. God makes him a nest. A room to live, a nest, a, a place of security. Now, I told you that I would do uh, the conversions here. So, one door, three floors, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 foot high, that can withstand a flood of waters. Now, if you have the word floodwaters in the text, you can make a note after that, which is a technical term for the celestial sea that will both be punished and 
uh, will both punish and purge the world. It will destroy all flesh. Now, here's the crazy thing. When you get into the accounts of the flood, there's a lot of people that look at it and they say, oh, the flood is just a thing that like, is made up. This is just like a good story in the text or whatever the case is. Actually, there's Babylonian traditions that talk about the flood. Like, and Babylonian tradition said the flood got so out of control, it frightened the gods and they cowered like dogs. So even like pagan people believe in the existence of a worldwide flood, which is proof that Elohim is sovereign over the world. All right, verse 18. By the way, I'm not going to read you all of this passage of Scripture. You're sitting there thinking, you're like, lunch has got to be coming soon here. Like, he's going to go through the whole thing. Don't worry, we'll get there. All right, Uh, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, and your sons are going to come in, your wife's going to come in, your son's wives are going to come in with you. Every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Verse 20. Of the birds according to their kinds, the animals according to their kinds, every creeping thing on the ground. Some of you are like, I wish he wouldn't have said that. Two of every sort will come in and keep you alive. 21. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Now here's the kicker in 22, which we'll get there in just a second. But look at this. Noah establishes his covenant with Noah. He confirms it and continues in a relationship that's already in existence. So what's happening here is each party does their part. Don't miss this. This is huge in understanding the New Testament theology. If Noah builds the ark, brings two of every sort of all flesh, animals, birds, beasts, all those things, and proper food, God would save and preserve and provide for Noah, his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, and humanity that enters it through the imminent flood. I just think that's interesting. The covenant has two parts, right? We jump into New Testament theology. New Testament theology says Christ died on the cross. His blood covers our sin. You have to repent and believe. There's two parts to the covenant, all right? Now, um, Andrew Murray, who lived in 1898, Bethany already beat me to the punch with the old guys, but here's another old guy which is really interesting. One of the words of scripture, which is almost going out of fashion, is the word covenant. As a matter of fact, there's not a lot of people who talk about the word covenant anymore. There was a time when it was the keynote of theology in the life of a believer. It was of strong and holy men. It made mighty men to whom God and his promise and power were wonderfully real keeps going. He said, it will be found still to bring strength and purpose to those who will take the trouble to bring all of their life under covenant, under control of the inspiring assurance that they are living in a relationship with God who has sworn faithfully to fulfill in them every promise he has given. Now, those are old words that still have amazing amount of relevance today. Because it's interesting how people in our society just want a relationship with God, but don't want to do their part. You can't just sit there and be like, God, just continue to bless me. Just continue to do things for me. And God looks at you and goes, when are you going to get off your butt and do something? So Noah goes, right? And here's 22. Look at verse 22. Love this passage. Underline it twice. Noah did this. It doesn't say he's like, he's like Lord, can you send some Nephilim over to build the ark? Like, how about them? They're big. 
Can you bring some other people in here? As a matter of fact, God, I heard that you created the world. Why don't you just create the ark? And then I'll walk into it. Actually, better yet, you pick me up, put me in the ark, and we're good. No, Noah puts into action his faith. He did all, it says, that God commanded him. Now, here's the crazy thing. If you want to, write Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 next to that passage of Scripture. Because in Hebrews eleven seven, 7, it says, Noah lived by faith. And that is demonstrated in the text. That's the definition of faith. The definition of faith is that you do what God tells you to do, all of what God tells you to do, not just some of it. A faith that took tremendous effort and investment. Now, here's the crazy thing. I'm thinking about this text. Noah had to work for years on this, a multitude of trees. Uh, he had to have a building site. He had to join the planks. He also probably spent his life savings on this. Like, where does Noah get the money? I mean, does he take up a love offering? I'm constantly curious. Like, where did you get the financial means to be able to build this ark? I mean, just don't walk into your neighbor's backyard and be like, hey, man, I'm going to borrow your tree for a while. So there's so many things that happen. This man of faith, because of his faith, is one of action and activity. Our faith needs to be one of action and activity. His faith is an obedient faith. We should imitate that. All right, now I'm not going to read chapter 7, verse 1 through 24. But you can just follow along with me, all right? Here comes the flood. With everything built, Noah whom Elohim reiterated as being righteous, that's in verse 1 of chapter 7, not working to gain favor, but just doing as he asked. That's important to note. He's not doing these things to be righteous. He's doing them because he is righteous. He brings uh, all of these things. He has one week, seven days, verse 4, to go into the ark. He welcomes seven pairs of clean, pure animals and birds and one pair of unclean animals and birds. Now, this is where Sunday school like, kind of goes off the rails because I'm like, I thought we just had two of every animal. Like, what happened here? And Noah may have known the distinctions between pure and impure. We don't, uh, but we know he walked with God, so we understand it. So both birds and animals come to Noah. That's verse 8 through 9, which is also amazing. And we ask the question, because we pause in our study for just a second, why seven pairs of clean animals? Well, after the flood, Noah will offer some of these clean animals as sacrifices. And he would have had more than just one pair of each kind of clean animal needed for species to survive. So he's, he's smart, too, at the same time. So for the first time on earth, rain is going to fall, not just from the ground. Now, the earth at this point is watered by springs that, that, that rise up from the ground. How cool would that be, right? Like we just talked about like flood warnings just uh, today. You got those kind of coming out like if it never rained. It just all of a sudden water on the ground. That's kind of weird. <clears throat> and here comes the rain from the heavens on the 40 days and nights. Now the word 40, if you want to circle that in that text, is the covenantal number plus the acts of the Lord in verse 5. And that represents a new age. So on the 17th day of the second month, when Noah turned 600, wolf, I can't even imagine being 600. Everything happened just as Elohim said. And Yahweh solidifies his end of his covenant. Verse 17, look at this. He shuts the door. He leaves Noah's salvation as an act of his divine, sovereign grace. Meanwhile, look at verse 23. Every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal, creeping things, birds of the heavens, were blotted out from the earth by water. Except to Noah's family. All right, now, they're stuck in this boat. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. <clears throat> what a blessing. 
but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. He remembered the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. The water subsided, the fountains of the deep, and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained. Verse 3, the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ariat. Now, if you go to Israel, people are going to say they know exactly the spot where uh, this uh, stopped. And they're lying, okay? Because we know it's in Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) And the waters continued to abate until, I'm in verse 5, until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, here's what's happening. For 150 days, Elohim, do not forget to underline that, remembered. No, he did not forget about him. There's so many times in our life where we think God forgets about us. He does not. He does not forget about the righteous. He does not forget about you and your problems. He does not forget about you and all of the things that are transpiring in your life. He knows. And that word wind comes, which is the word ruah or the spirit, which is the exact same word in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. So the spirit is present. And it blows over the earth, and the water subsided. So on the 17th month of the 17th day of Noah's 600 year of life, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ariat. Now you're probably wondering where that's at. That's the eastern part of Turkey. And that's talked about in um, first, or Second Kings chapter 19. It's like southern Russia, northwestern Iran. And the floodwaters slowly abated. All right, now I'm going to recap this for you. Ready? Okay. From the time Noah and his family entered the ark, because let me tell you something. I had to like, kind of figure this out in my brain. There was seven days of waiting. Can you imagine that? Being in the ark for seven days, just hearing people constantly berate you. Water comes for 150 days. Then there's 150 days of water receding. Noah sees land. The earth is completely dry in 70 days. So that's a total of 377 days in the ark, or one year and 17 days. I did the math for you. I did that like five times, by the way. So I was like, wait, is that right? Is that right? That's, that's right. Okay. And the flood comes to an end. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8. <clears throat> at the end of 40 days, Noah opens the window. Why does he open the window? Because he can't open the door. And he sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put his hand out. He took her. He brought her into the ark with him. He waited for another seven days and again sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Underline that. A freshly plucked olive leaf. I'll get there in a second. And Noah knew that the waters had subsided on the earth. And he waited another seven days and set forth the dove and she did not return to him any more. Verse 13. In the sixth hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters dried from all the earth, and Noah recovered the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry, and in the seventh month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. (sighs) That's a lot. At the end of 40 days, Noah sends a raven. Now, here's the interesting thing. I love this. I didn't learn this in Sunday school, but I learned it today. Actually, I learned a long time ago. I'm giving it to you today. At the end of 40 days, Noah sent a raven. A raven is an unclean bird. And since out of the ark's window, and sending birds out was common to find land by sailors in ancient times. Now, why doesn't the raven come back? 
The raven is an unclean bird, doesn't return, because many people believe it goes to feed on the dead floating carcasses. Never thought about that. Never would have thought. I mean, if we have all this time, think about it. Think of how many dead people are everywhere. Can you imagine getting out of the ark and just, like, bodies everywhere? And Raven would have fed on those carcasses. So Noah, he sends out a clean bird. That's a dove. Doves don't feed on carcasses. First time he sends it out, no dry land. Waits a week, sends the dove out a second time, returns with a freshly plucked olive leaf. Please underline that if you haven't done so. This shows that trees and plants were growing again, and to this day, a dove with an olive leaf is a symbol of peace and goodness. Now, Charles Spurgeon unpacks this passage brilliantly, and he makes an extremely good observation. And <laughs> He's been dead a while, but he said, perhaps you've seen a picture of a dove carrying an olive branch. And it's got it in its mouth, which is in the first place, a dove could not pluck off the tree. Like, it's impossible. These things are tiny, right? In the second place, a dove could not carry an olive branch even if she could pluck it off. It was an olive leaf. That's it. It was a leaf. So what's the point? What's, what, are you, what are you trying to make here? What's, what's like your whole thing? Why cannot people keep to the words of Scripture? This is what the Bible says. If the Bible mentions a leaf, then they make it a branch. And if the Bible says it's a branch, they make it a leaf. It's the text. Keep the text the text. That's so important to our understanding the words of Scripture. If you want to be obedient, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be blameless, and you want to walk with God, get Scripture right. So here comes God's covenant with Noah. And we start landing the plane. Verse 15. <clears throat> then God says to Noah, you can leave. <laughs> Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you. I love that he has to mention all of them, right? Like, not just Noah. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of the flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah goes out. And his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out from the families of the ark. Dry grounds available, earth dried out. Elohim tells Noah and his family it's safe to exit. I love that Noah doesn't leave until God gives him the word. Now here's the other thing. I probably wouldn't have walked out that ark either if I saw dead bodies everywhere. They could be fruitful and multiply. Now, John Calvin, another dead guy, dead guys still speak gives great words on Noah's righteousness. How great must have been the fortitude of the man who after the incredible weariness of a whole year, tired, exhausted, all of those things, when the deluge has ceased and a new life has shown forth, does not yet move a foot without the commandments of God. That's righteousness. He does not go into God's world until God says, you can go into my world. That is fruitfulness manifested in flesh. And look at verse 20. Noah builds an altar to the Lord. Another act of worship. And he takes some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offers burnt, uh, burnt offerings on the altar. Noah's first act after leaving the ark is one of worship. Obedience and walking and then building the altar. And this is another first in scripture where he offers burnt offerings, clean animals. Only clean animals can be used in sacrificial offerings. That's gonna be unpacked in Leviticus chapter 11. 
So Noah's offering an entire animal, burning it, fully consuming by a fire on the altar. Now, here's the deal. Because I can't even imagine this. That was costly and faith-based. It was costly and it was faith-based. It showed that Noah's belief in Yahweh's ability to provide and his faithfulness and allegiance to him. As far as Noah was concerned, the new world would be built on a foundation of obedience and submission to God. Verse 21. We're almost there. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's seasons, by the way. This is the only time in Scripture we see God explicitly smell an aroma from a sacrifice. Now, he's not inhaling smoke. Don't get that, all right? It's anthropomorphic language, which just means it's a human analogy of a divine action or attribute. It means that God is pleased with Noah and his sacrifice. It's heartfelt. Yahweh promises to never destroy the earth again by water. Now, here's the crazy thing. The flood affects no fundamental change in sinful humanity. However, Noah's sacrifice affects a change in God by appeasing his righteous anger against sin. He doesn't change God, but the approach has changed. Adam's original sin will continue to be passed on from humanity after the flood. God affirms that the intention of every man's heart is evil from his youth. But as long as the earth endures, he'll never again strike down every living creature as he did with the flood. Furthermore, Yahweh will providentially preserve the earth and its ecosystem until the final judgments that's talked about in Revelation. Okay, so we get to the end and we say, so what? Cool Sunday story, right? We get there. Matter of fact, having a conversation with a guy on Thursday, he looked at me. He has no idea what preaching is about. He has no idea what it means to exegete scripture. He has no idea what it means to get the idea of the actual text. He looked at me and he said, what's your presentation about on Sunday? And I'm like, I don't present. I just give the word of God. I teach and preach. It's different than anything else. He said, what's the main point? I said, Genesis 6, 7, and 8. This is the word of God. What do we do with it? Well, we don't look at the word of God and say, hmm, this is what it means to me. We look at the word of God and say, this is what it means I conform to it. That's the obedience, right? So when we get to obedience, we realize that Noah's story illustrated many things that are relevant to us as New Testament believers. It shows freedom. It shows faith. It shows heart. It shows covenant. We are a worshiping people who give God the very best of what is rightfully his. We do not give God seconds. We do not look at God and say, if I have time, I will spend time with you. The time that we waste is the time that has been given to us. And what a disobedient approach for us to look at God and say, I will not let you in to specific areas of my life. The redeemed of Yahweh offer him praise of their lips. We constantly praise God for who he is and what he has done. And then we give the best of what we have. And we are willing and humble in our spirits. 
I go back to Noah and I think, Lord, am I righteous? In other words, have I made a declaration of faith? Have I confessed with my mouth and believed in my heart that Jesus is Lord? And then if I have, how am I doing in regards to obedience? Am I walking blamelessly? Am I walking with the Lord or am I walking with myself? Noah received Yahweh's grace. He walked with him in righteousness and was preserved from judgment. He enters into a new age with people's wickedness temporarily removed and responded with worship and sacrifice. Now, here's the crazy thing. I wish I could say that Noah stayed that way. Some of you know the rest of the text, and we're going to get into that. But the same should be said about us. We have received God's grace through the offering of Jesus the Messiah and are saved from coming judgment. Whoa. Like we've heard that so many times, but we're so passive about it. We have received God's grace through the offering of Christ the Messiah, saved from coming judgment. And so therefore, we walk obediently and righteously in Christ. We declare the excellencies of him who saved us. We do not walk obediently so that we will be saved. We walk obediently because we have been saved. And when we enter into that new age, when sin is removed forever, our response is always in worship and sacrifice. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He, he just brings it right home. And he says how faithfully God fulfills his covenant with the earth. And how truly will he keep his covenant with every believing sinner. And here's, here's like the charge. Trust it. Like trust it. Trust in him. His promise will stand fast forever. God's promises never fail. They never return void. Just as he said he was going to do for Noah in Genesis 6, 7, 8, he will do the same. He will do the same. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, uh, just come before you this morning just so, so humbled that, that you would look upon us sinners and, and offer redemption. I think of the carcasses that were canvassed over the earth at the end of the flood. And I think to myself all the time, I should be there. I, I, don't, I don't deserve a relationship with you. My, my trespasses are, are so uh, evident and, and huge. And yet, even in my distress, you come to me and you say, I, I want a relationship with you. And you offer everything. And, and God, some of us have not trusted in that relationship. We haven't trusted in Christ. And if that's you this morning, and you're here, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't have the relationship that you have. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of works. So nobody can boast. Jesus is not a condemnation. He is salvation. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Enter into the family of God. And Lord, so many of us have done that. 
And yet we're just kind of like giving you like pieces of this life instead of being all in. So I just ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would fill us to, to break things this week, like break sin, break uh, things that are, that are tripping us up, to know that we are more than conquerors in our relationship with you, to, to find our identity in the living God, that we are really your children, and that you really can do great things. I pray, Lord, that every word we say this week, every thought that we think, every action that we make would be to honor and glorify you so the people who are far from you would have a, a, an opportunity to come to know you, that the gospel would always be on our lips and that our, our acts of worship would always point back to that gospel, that we would be uplifting people and that we would set up our altars and sacrifice them to you. I say, you, you are enough. You've done great things, and you're not done doing great things. So be the great restorer, the great lifter of our head. Help us to trust in your promises that never return void. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.